0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, Rebecca Huntley with you for part four of our Gone Mallee series. In this episode, producer Mike Ladd investigates the evolution of the mallee trees themselves and goes looking for hidden fowls and stone curlews. Now let's head into the mallee scrub.
2: Beneath the dappled olive canopy of the Mallee is a myriad of small surprises and wonderful adaptations to an extreme environment. Tiny orchids flourish after good rains and often need ash or smoke to trigger prolific flowers. Grevilleas, flame heath and couriers splash reds and pinks, and banksias dripping with nectar are a feast for pygmy-possums, birds, and insects. Reptiles, birds, animals, plants, and insects have all adapted across hundreds of centuries to survive extreme heat, long periods without rain, winter-night temperatures that fall below zero, and ancient, infertile, sandy soils, salt, or clay. Survival depends upon things being small in scale and often camouflaged. The wonders that make up this understated environment have to be carefully searched for. Jill Nichols.
3: Walking through the the Maui. It's of delicate colours. greys and greens, olives, tans, peeled bark dangling down from the thin branches like necklaces, festoons.
4: There's something about the colour of that tree, the blue, grey, green, none of those colours, but yet parts of all those colours, almost a kind of icy colour, I find captivating. And on top of all that, they're not a standard pretty or beautiful tree. Uh, they're straggly. They're, they're almost ramshackle, rather like the human settlements surrounding them.
1: A beautiful Mallee tree, which is, not everybody sees it as, as beautiful, but I think it's such a robust tree and I just, I love it. We've got the Whipstick Mallee, which is, you know, often grows in the areas where it's um, very clay and uh, so they don't get very big and they just have these fine little trunks, which you know, is beautiful walking through them.
4: The survivors,
0: you've got a job to kill them and uh, they've been through a lot of dry times and they're still there. You go and pull a mallee tree out and you only have to leave a root there and she'll be growing again. So uh, we've had to clear them obviously to um, farm, but I was very lucky my father and uncle and grandfather seen we had first growth mallee and they left patches of that. So we're very lucky to have that. That will never get cleared. It's got a its sort of a particular beauty to it, I think, especially on a morning like this, with the um, bit of rain and the, the
3: leaves still glistening with a bit of the sunlight in them, so yeah, no it is it's uh, uh, special
0: They always seem so small and insignificant when you go to other places and there's big massive trees and you know the gum trees that are beautiful and majestic, but I think the Mallee tree has its own beauty it's just part of the landscape, it is what it is
5: I'll never forget when they Bought brought in these bulldozers and pulled the scrub. I come home, 1,600 acres they pulled in one shot. It was a huge area. And when we burnt it, we, there was myself and two brothers and uncle was in partners with dad, there was five of us with our burning sticks and going around lighting. We just lit along the windy side of the perimeter and let it go and 1,600 acres. Took about a bit over a week to, to burn through.
3: Here we are, the famous Mallee Roots. Big gold, noduled, gnarled, twisted forms that burn all night.
5: They're a scarcity, are Mallee um, roots. The country's been cleared, they've yeah. all been pulled out of the ground, and, and I can remember burning heaps of them, and now I just wonder why the hell ever done that.
2: All are blackened and charred, and many are dead, but most of them have put forth young twigs and leaves. Some among them are, indeed, a perfect idyll of spring. All a mass of tender young leaves clad in pale green. The youngest and smallest of them tinged with a pure bronzy shade, fluttering above the charred branches and along the coal black trunks as if planted by some fantastic gardener in hidden vases. Catherine Martin, 1890.
4: It just shows you how extraordinarily tenacious those trees are. It's almost as if nature knew even way back then that it was going to be a very tough business to survive and the lignotubus system itself is almost a metaphor for the kind of endurance required by the humans that inhabit the same landscape.
3: botanist Martin O'Leary.
6: Typical mallee, well the habit of it is a multi trunked or stemmed tree. It can be shrub size, it can be a small tree. It has a, a developed tuber or a mallee root. Within that there's hundreds of dormant buds so if a fire burns the mallee or insects chew the branches and they fall over there's plenty of dormant buds to come up and and shoot again. So um, how did they evolve? Well, they seem to have appeared around 60 million years ago. They're a Gondwanan plant. There's early fossils from South America that are 52 million years old, of a proper eucalyptus. At that stage, Australia and South America was attached to Antarctica, so the eucalypts probably grew in Antarctica. The South American fossils appear to have grown near volcanoes where there's a fire regime. And that's, they're not growing in rainforests. They're in a dry, open area where there's fire burning and they can regenerate. So they probably evolved that love of fires way, way back
3: Tell us about how old they can get.
6: The age of malleys has been very poorly studied. There's often figures given around 500 years or many hundred years, but it really has hardly ever been studied. There is one case in Western Australia where on a headland over 30 metres, there's one tree called the Meelup Mallee, and that consists of about Twenty or so separate stems now that was aged with some DNA work and found to be 6,600 years old Wow So in South Australia there's arguably trees that could exist from the last ice age or the, the last sea level rise which is about 10,000 years but nobody really knows because nobody's really studied that and with the Mallee's, the Mallee's ability to grow apart or the lignin tuba to separate and keep growing outwards they could in theory grow for hundreds hundreds of meters or even maybe kilometers but that's pure speculation.
3: Would that make them the oldest
6: trees in Australia? Potentially. What are its uses? It provides habitat for all the plants and animals that live in Mallee. The Mallee roots are important for controlling salinity, because where they've been removed, salinity is increased. That's to do with the water table. The roots were a source for water, they could be dug up and cut and drank from. The leaves and the, the gum, the keno, was used medicinally for wound healing and things like diarrhoea. Other uses, well, the well-known uses were they were burnt a lot for firewood. They produced some nice honeys. One of the other main uses of of malleys is the, with all the oil in the leaves, that they were distilled for oil. Now you still get that happening on Kangaroo Island with Eucalyptus nerofolia or Kangaroo Island narrowleaf mallee That has a particularly nice level of certain oils. There was a traditional food, lerp or larp was another Aboriginal name. Lerp is a sap sucking insect that sits on the leaves and and produces sugar. Now they could be gathered together and used as cakes. Hans Hermann Baer was an early botanist that visited South Australia twice in the 1840s, and he met an Aboriginal man on the way to Morundi where he was shown it was lurks, but he called it manna that grew on the trees. That was very tasty as he's recorded. So.
3: Manna from heaven. Yeah. How much of Australia did it once cover? And how much is left now?
6: Malleys across Australia have covered about 250,000 square kilometres, and 80% of the Mallee in some areas being been cleared. In fact, in some areas, nearly all the Mallee has been cleared, but that's a regional matter.
3: Is there any attempt to regrow Mallee? To re establish? Yes,
6: I, th- I think there is. There's some um, land care groups in certain areas, and the There's projects along the River Murray where there's quite a bit of revegetation of some Mallee species.
7: in pursuit of mallee fowls.
3: An endangered species, the mallee fowl is a mound builder. It's bigger than a chicken, but smaller than a brush turkey. Mottled grey, white and brown, its feathered camouflage perfectly matches the leaf and bark litter on the forest floor.
8: Most of the mounds I know I've here, been, I've known them there for 40 years. Oh, so they nest in the same place for 40 years. Yeah, but not necessarily the same bird. But right. Probably descendants out of the mound. Yeah. They fend for themselves from day one. The Young birds have no, no contact with the adults. Wow. And they've ha- they have to dig out of the mound. You're on your own. And oh. you're on your own. Yeah. And with half an hour, they could fly. It's
3: amazing, isn't it?
8: Where are we heading now see them, Kevin? Well, we're heading north to a... Uh, big patch of about a thousand acres of natural scrub that's never been cleared. And there's been several pairs in that patch. And they're they're actually quite hard to see even when you're close to them, aren't they? Because they camouflage. Well they blend in. They blend in. normally when you're walking in the scrub you you don't see them very often and when you do see them they'll give you fright because they'll just pop up in front of you somewhere, you know, like you won't, because you're in fairly thick scrub, you won't see them 100 metres away, they'll be like, pop up 5 metres in
3: front of you. Yeah. And have you noticed, since you were a boy, have they been coming back in numbers or are they still shrinking in numbers?
8: Well I reckon they're holding their own here in this area, but fox are big predator too. Yeah. Can they fly? Oh they can fly. Right. But they, they only fly when they have to, and they, and they roost in trees at night.
3: Kevin Oakley is a farmer who's made it his personal mission to observe and protect mallee fowls in his area. Were they um, considered good food by the early oh, settlers too? They, yeah, they used to
8: get shot lot right, in the yeah. early days. a yeah,
3: Sort of prime Christmas dinner, I guess.
8: Well, I don't think, I wouldn't like to eat one, I don't reckon. No. You see what they do, how much work they do on the mound. I think this should be a pretty tough old drumstick. <laughs> right. I think you'd want to throw a rock in with it when you're cooking it. You'd eat the rock and throw <laughs> the thing away.
3: I've never seen one in the wild, but this evening we're in luck.
8: I was down this road here where I saw them. You saw
3: one? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? Yeah.
1: No, I saw one. You reckon it here? looks like a bit stripy.
8: Yes. Yeah, so, uh, that's it's about the size of a big Yeah. yeah. Big well, we'll go back. Yeah. Oh, we'll speak. Because um, they're, they're normally fairly quiet, so it's just bad. Are
1: they
8: really scared? Oh, no, that. There it is, yeah.
3: Oh. Fantastic.
8: Might have to be quick. There you go. Well spotted.
3: The birds mate for life and lay clutches of up to 30 eggs buried in mounds one metre high and six metres round, scratched up from the forest floor. The mounds are lined with leaf litter that composts and warms the eggs. It takes an expert eye to find the mounds in the Mallee Scrub. she blows.
8: The nest cavity is sort of here we'll try and just you can look, put your hand down in there you'll start to feel a bit of warmth. Oh but yeah. They have to dig this out dig they stand here and they scratch it back right and sand you know as you're digging it's running in again and running in and digging and digging and digging yeah. they have to dig down that far lay the egg and then fill it in they test the temperature with their beak and their tongue, and they keep it at about 34 degrees. Right. Later in the year, the sun will heat the sand up. You see. Right. In the initial part, now they're relying on the on the decayed material, which is down under there.
3: Jill Nichols is a nature lover of the Mallee. As she points out, there's a lot more to it than the eponymous trees.
1: We've got so many acacias and melaleucas, haecias, grevilleas, banksias in various areas. There's the balar, which is the bull oak or the she-oak. And they just whisper, you know, you hear them whispering in the wind. And um, it's, it's lovely to just, when everything else is quiet, to hear them talk. We've got the echidna, uh, Mitchell's hopping mouse. People will actually find them in their sheds and they're not like the field mouse, of course, which we do have problems with. But got little pygmy possums. Friends have found them in their sheds, you know, just in a little nest somewhere. And uh, the dunnet and the southern Ningawi, which is very, very rare. They're marsupial and uh, they're nocturnal and we do not sort of see them very often, so, which is a bit of a pity. Got seven little teats apparently. You'd hardly <laughs> think you'd get that on there. I know. Never ever seen the Mallee um, Emu-wren, which I would love to see, and but it's a very very rare bird. So we keep looking. The red cap Robin is one that I absolutely love. It's just, it's the brightest, most beautiful little bird. And there it is hopping around in the Mallee. You'd wonder how it would lived, really, but. It obviously gets enough uh, moisture, and um, it's got its its home here, so which is really lovely.
3: The poet John Shaw Nielsen had a great affinity with the birds of the Mallee. The blue crane, also known as the white-faced heron, he would have seen in the Nil Swamp near his family home, or as he worked on the roads around Lake Tyrrell in Western Victoria.
7: The crane is my neighbor. The bird is my neighbor. A whimsical fellow and dim, there is in the lake a nobility falling on him. The bird is a noble, he turns to the sky for a theme and the ripples are thoughts coming out to the edge of a dream. The bird is both ancient and excellent, sober and wise. But he never could spend all the love that is sent for his eyes. He bleats no instruction. He is not an arrogant drummer. His gown is simplicity, blue as the smoke of the summer. How patient he is as he puts out his wings for the blue. His eyes are as old as the twilight and calm as the dew. The bird is my neighbour. He leaves not a claim for a sigh. He moves as the guest of the sunlight, he roams in the sky. The bird is a noble. He turns to the sky for a theme and the ripples are thoughts coming out to the edge of a dream.
3: A treasure from my personal library is a 1938 first edition of Shaw Nielsen's collection *Beauty Imposes*. It contains his poem *Golden Fugitive*, dedicated to a departing smoker parrot. And Shaw Nielsen adds this footnote:
7: The wholesale destruction of timber in the Mallee, which has brought about terrific dust storms, now almost threatening to drive the settlers off the land has also been the cause of the departure of many birds. Golden fugitive to a departing smoker parrot. Moonlight and sunrise ran about your wing. Lightning and sundown. Every joy in yellow came for your raiment and your comforting, our most victorious fellow. Beauty was yours. All beauty folly-fed, quickening the love with every old misgiving, deep as the faint remembrance of the dead, called halfway to the living. Joy was upon you that of old was planned over the gentle hill, the flowery hollow. Lightly you gave enchantment to the land, where no dull man could follow. Down the green honey you came out in gold, You cannot see the tempest of tomorrow, nor the approach of man, tyrant of old, with espionage and sorrow. Man with his axe, his old contentious plow, grieves in the dust a gray ungracious fellow. He who is warred with heaven, can he allow faint emperors in yellow? A rewilding.
3: Ben Holmes is a ranger at the Little Desert Nature Lodge, south of Nil.
0: The Little Desert's an interesting place, right on the edge of the Mallee, but where the the system basically functions like an arid or semi-arid system. So that boom-bust adaptation is pretty common across all species, both plants and animals. So when we do get a bit of moisture, most animals and most plants respond quite quickly and then they flourish and then in the dry times you'll see them decreasing number and distribution considerably. One of our interesting species we've got here is the silky mouse. So it's one of our native rodents and one of the few small to medium sized mammals that still persists in the desert. They live in these communal burrows and they can be up to a metre deep and uh, that sort of protects them from a lot of the um, extreme temperatures and weathers that we get in this environment. One of the other species that we're still seeing occasionally when we do our trapping is uh, the pygmy possums the western and the little pygmy possum surviving. We caught our first little pygmy possum the other day and fully grown at four and a half grams, so about the size of a dice, just to give you a bit of an idea. So super, super cute little animals.
3: How about uh, bird
0: life? We get purple-gaped honey eater and the shy heath wren and the southern scrub robin, so birds are quite mobile so they can move around and follow the food resources. Some years we see lots of them and some years we don't see many of them um, because being mobile they can move through the landscape a little bit better.
3: Let's talk about your rewilding project. Tell us how the whole thing works.
0: Yeah, so rewilding is a relatively new concept in in conservation biology. There's quite a few of our native species that are missing from this landscape that have gone extinct since European settlements. So our aim is to reintroduce these species back into the environment, but particularly we're focusing on animals that do important things they do something in the landscape that helps manage it. So a a classic example would be the diggers, so the betongs and the bandicoots and stuff like that that are missing from the landscape, they would turn over a lot of soil. They would create habitat niches for insects, they would help with nutrient recycling and seed germination and water infiltration and all that kind of stuff. So without these species in the landscape, the ecosystem isn't functioning and it not as healthy as it would be otherwise. Our aim is to reintroduce some of these species so then the ecosystem is more resilient. We've got 120 hectares with a predator proof fence. So this is a six foot high fence with three electrical wires on it and it's very effective at keeping the foxes and cats out. We've got three main aims with the rewilding project here. So the first one is conservation. So we want to help conserve a suite of these species that are threatened. Um, The second one is we want to use it as a proof of concept to try and demonstrate that reintroducing these animals has a positive impact on the environment. And the third key thing that we're trying to do here is rewild people. So we're trying to get people back out in nature and connected to nature and this beautiful landscape. So there's a couple options for people to come here and just stay here at the Little Desert Nature Lodge and they can come and walk around here and see animals or they can volunteer with us and participate in these research and monitoring programs.
3: Wow, some pretty scary looking electric fences there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, foxes and cats are pretty scary creatures, so um, so yeah, so we, we run these uh, electrical wires around the fence to keep those guys out. Um, so, as I said, this is our wildlife display facility, we call it the Avery. It's 1.3 hectares, and um, this is the first place we'll be reintroducing those animals, hopefully, in the not too distant future.
3: So, this is like an extra secure area within the
0: So, that you just heard calling was one of our bush stone curlews. Oh, lovely. Mm.
3: Yeah. Well, we might sneak in there and try and get a bit closer to him and try and pull him in a bit better. Yeah. When we got really close, the curlews froze into silence, pretending to be pieces of wood.
1: And that was the final program in our Gone Mallee series. The music was by Jakob Gadashinsky, and the sound engineer was Tom Henry. The series was written and produced by Mike Ladd. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Catch you next time on the History Listen.